good to be here. And uh, it's been, uh, been a few months since I've been, uh, been over. I asked him, I called Mark one day, and we went and had lunch. I said, have I offended you? I haven't heard from you in a few months. And uh, so he says, oh, no, no, things have been great. But it's been four or five months since I've had the opportunity to be here. But uh, it's always a pleasure to come over and uh, worship with you. And we're going to be talking today about the topic of worldliness. And uh, this message was inspired by a book that was given to me uh, several months ago, actually in September 2009. And uh, the book is called Respectable Sins. How's that for a title? Respectable Sins. Now, I'm, always, I'm always a little cautious when somebody gives me a book like this and says, here, you know, I think you want to read this, you know. Um, you know and and uh, so I sort of put it down for a while and, uh, you know, I thought, oh, I don't know if I want to go there or not. And so, uh, but then I picked it up in, uh, in uh, October and I started reading this book and uh, it's written by Jerry Bridges. Many of you will know the name. Jerry wrote the book, uh, The Pursuit of Holiness, I think was the title of the book. It's just an outstanding um, uh, teacher of the word and uh, Christian man. He's a notable author, speaker, and so forth. And so he spent many decades working through this issue of sin in our life. And, and it has had a significant impact in my own life. And so one of the sins we're going to talk about is the sin of, of, of worldliness. And of course, one of the things we, we learn in the book, he talks about sin and, and you know, sin in our culture and actually in many churches has sort of gone missing you know, it's not talked about anymore. It's pretty rare when we hear messages on sin. I mean, you didn't get up this morning and say, man, I just really hope we hear a message on sin today. I mean, it's not something that we really seek after. Uh, so it's, it's gone missing, but of course, sin really hasn't gone missing. You know, we've just sort of redefined it, right? And, and we, we seem to be more interested today in the sins of culture, the sins of society, and sins of other people. I mean, we think of Eliot Spitzer, the former governor of New York, or most recently we think of Tiger Woods, and you know, we look at the media and TV and we see all the sin that's around us, and we seem quite interested in other people's sins. And so we've sort of redefined sin in our culture today as those scandalous sins over there, but you know, that's not me. I, I'm not engaged in any of that kind of activity. But yet, there seems to be so many of these little things that begin to creep into my life and these little sins that take up residence, they sort of begin to dull my spiritual senses, if you will, and then my life is not quite as fruitful, perhaps, as God would like it to, uh, would like it to be. So these little sins, you know, whether it's my tone of voice and how I treat my spouse or my children and you know, it's, it's, it's anger, it's frustration, it's worry. There's many of these sins that begin to creep up into our lives, and we, we don't even think much about them now because they've become acceptable. They're acceptable. They're just a part of who we are, and everybody does them, so they're, they're okay. Years ago, I read a, uh, a little story about a, a pastor who lived up in New England, and he always wanted to have this, uh, this little gentleman's hobby type of farm. And so he saved his money for many years, and he went up, and he bought this little 15-acre hobby farm about an hour north from where he was pastoring. And he and his wife would, uh, would go up there for the two days off and to recharge the batteries, and they just loved working on this little farm. And there was 10 acres of land that came with this little farm, and, uh, and so he was excited about the prospects of beginning to plant the field. He always wanted to grow crops. And so uh, they got up there, and he went out in the 10 acres of field, and it had been cleared of all the trees, but it had never been tilled before and 
And so he was walking through the fields thinking about what he would be able to plant there. And of course, he began immediately to see these boulders that were sitting around. And of course, he couldn't begin to till the land with these boulders that were there. And, and so he went down to meet his neighbor, the farmer, down the street. And when he went down there, the farmer said, well, I've got a large backhoe. I'll come over and I'll move those boulders outside the boundaries of the property. And so the uh, farmer went and did that. And so the next week when the pastor came back up, sure enough, there were the boulders moved outside the, the boundaries of the property. And as he's walking through uh, the, the, the land again, kind of looking at, at what he might plant there. All of a sudden, he, he sees these larger rocks that, you know, you really hadn't seen them before because, you know, the big boulders kind of captured all the attention before. And he, he, he knew that he couldn't, of course, plow the fields with all these rocks there. And so again, he went down to the, see the farmer and he says, well, I have a son who uh, gets out of school every day at three o'clock and some of his buddies would be happy to come down and you could hire him and, and uh, bring the tractor and trailer down there and, and remove the rocks from your field. And sure enough, a couple weeks later, he comes back up and he sees that the boys had taken all these thousands of, of rocks and they were now outside the border of the property. And then as he's walking through the, the, the acreage again, anticipating what he would plant there, all of a sudden he began to see something he hadn't seen before. He began to see all these little stones that he, that he hadn't seen, these uh, pebbles we'll call them, you know. And, and these were not, see, not, not visible before because, you know, all I could see were the, the rocks that, uh, that, that stood out. And if you know anything about farming, any farmers here? you know that it's very difficult to plow and to get a productive yield when you have these kinds of, of rocks and stones that get in the way of the process. Boulders, rocks, and pebbles. The pastor had a revelation several years later, you know, and he came back up, you know, the next year, uh, he noticed as he was going through the field the following year that every once in a while he'd see a rock that would push its way up and, and these pebbles just continually came to the, the surface of the land and over the several years period, even a boulder or two would have a way of working its way to the, to, through the crust of the earth. And of course, this is a geological fact that the earth consists of these boulders, rocks, and pebbles, and, and platelets that just are constantly moving and they're constantly pushing forward until they get to the top. And so the farmer has to spend all this time working at getting the boulders, rocks, and pebbles out of the field in order to have a productive crop. And this seems to be the way that sin will work in our own lives. Because when you come to that point where you recognize that you're a sinner and you're separated from God because of your sin, and the scripture says that the penalty for sin is death, and, and I was at that point in my life where I heard the good news of the gospel, and received Christ as Savior, was forgiven of my sin. But the Spirit of God takes up residence in a believer's life at that moment. And then what begins to happen is the Spirit of God begins to work in your life. And the first thing that he comes to your attention is the Spirit of God begins to point to what? The boulders in your life. And they're the big things, and they're kind of the obvious sins in your life, and so you begin to work at them to get them out of your life, and pretty soon you know you're able to move some of these boulders out of your life with the help of the Spirit of God and your ability to say no to, to the boulders. And you're thinking, I'm pretty, pretty good here. I got these boulders out of my life. And All of a sudden, though, the Spirit of God, assuming I'm seeking God, continues to work in my life, and, and all of a sudden he begins to convict me and point out these other sins in my life, these stones, not as big as the boulders over here, but these are significant sins in my life. 
And there's several of these, Blake, that you must remove from your life. And, and all of a sudden, the Spirit of God is convicting me, and I know, and I go through this struggle and this tension, but I begin to move the, the rocks outside the borders of my life. And then after a while, period of time, I'm feeling pretty good about getting some of the sin out of my life. And, but then the Spirit of God continues to work, and now, all of a sudden, there's all these little pebbles, these little things, whether it's anger, frustration, worry, fear. I mean, there's many, many of these little sins that have crept into our lives, and in some ways, they're holding us captive. We'll never be all of what God wants us to be as long as we allow these things to have their place in our lives. They just sort of dull our spiritual senses and they clog up the machinery, so to speak, so that the yield of the fruit in our life is not anywhere near what it could be. So there's danger with our sin as it relates to when we go out into the world. The world can be a dangerous place because every time we, we move out into the world, we are constantly tempted. And the verse in, in uh, Genesis chapter uh, four, verse seven, is it four, seven? Yeah, four, seven, the second half of the verse. You know, this is a very interesting verse because God himself is stating these words to Cain and the context of this verse is that Cain and Abel were to bring their sacrifice to God. And of course, Abel's sacrifice was acceptable and Cain's was not because Cain wanted to do what he wanted to do. He didn't want to obey. And so God comes down to mentor and coach Cain. And he's asking him, why are you feeling so badly? Don't you know that if you do what is right, you'll be honored and, 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 and you, you just need to obey? And then God says this. He says, sin is crouching at the door of your life. And it desires you and you must master it. And so we have this constant thing. Sin is constantly at the door of my life and your life, and it desires to consume you. And when we go out into the world, the world can be a very dangerous place, and the world can harm your soul. And so we see a number of, of verses that, that address this. We'll take a look at a couple of these warnings right now. Let's look at what Jesus says about the world. He says in John 15, 19, he says, if you belong to the world... It would love you as its own, but as it is, you do not belong to the world because I've chosen you out of the world. So there is the kingdom of this world. Jesus came, you put your trust in him, he's redeemed you out of the kingdom of this world and he's put you into the kingdom of God. So as a believer, I'm in the kingdom of God. Jesus has taken me out of the kingdom of this world. John's warning to us. Uh, in, in 1 John 5, 19, we know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. So in the kingdom of, 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 of uh, the world here, the evil one is in control. And our sin nature is constantly there. It's crouching at the door and the evil one will do everything he can to deceive and destroy us. Paul's warning in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind 
and there is a new pattern over here in the kingdom of God, and this is the pattern for your life that God wants you to live. So we are to transform. We're no longer to, to live in this pattern, but we're to establish a new pattern for living, and this can only happen as a result of me transforming. Notice what Ephesians 2.1, Paul says to us, you were dead in your transgressions and sins which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world. You were dead, worldliness, you're living in the world. You're, you're, you're a slave to the, 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 the law of sin, you're a slave to the sinful nature in your life, you're in the world and the world is deceiving you, sin has got a hold of you, Jesus has set you free and you no longer have to live that way. So when we talk about freedom that we just sang about, we are free from Sin, when Christ died, one of the things he did is he died for you so you no longer have to die. He's forgiven you your sins, but it says in Romans very clearly that he has freed us from the law of sin. James warning, verse 4, 4. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. So God feels very strongly about this, and we've been in the world, we've been conditioned by the world, we've been thinking like the world, but we've been taken out of the world. But here's part of the problem. There are some of us who are believers here, and, and we are in the kingdom of God, but you know what? We spend all of our time over here in the kingdom of this world. We're, we're going steady with the world. And then there may be some of us in this room who um, we're, here, we're in the kingdom of God, we've been saved, and, and we just sort of come over here once in a while and hang out, and then we go back. You, you may be dating the world. But then there's some of us, perhaps, who are over here in the kingdom of the world. Maybe we're a little more mature in our faith walk, and, and, uh, but, you know, we kind of t take a look over there. And, and you know... We go over here for a little while and hang out, and then we go back, and we sort of flirt with the world. You know, so how can we be in the world but not of the world? So there's a problem, and the, the problem is because of my sin nature in the world, that there is, it, the world, it, 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 it is great danger to my soul. And this is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17, he says, come out and be separate. The context of the verse here is to come out from the world and separate yourself from it. What does that look like? What does it mean to be separate from the world? You know, this is a concept we need to get our minds wrapped around to understand what it means to be separate from the world because the world is grave danger to us. But what does it mean to be separate from the world? Well, <clears throat> to be separate, first of all, sometimes it's easier to talk about what something is not rather than what it is in order to get a better understanding of what it is. So let's talk for a moment a little bit about what it isn't. So what, what we're not talking about here. It does not mean that everything that God has created. I mean, he's created the world. He's created the heavens, the earth, the sun, the moon, the stars. He's created all of animal kingdom and plant life and all of humankind and everything we see he's created, right? And when he created it in Genesis 1.31, he says, he looked at everything he created and he said, what? It's good, right? 
No, he didn't say that. He said it's very good. Very good. So we're, so we're really not talking about the world when we're talking about being separate, the, the things that God has created, because he said himself it was all good. So we're not talking about that. So we're also, it, it, the, the idea of separating doesn't mean that Christians should sep separate themselves from the rest of the world. Oftentimes we think, okay, now that I'm a believer, you know, go off and live on a mountain clock or mountaintop or go off and live in a cave or go off in some way and you separate yourself from the rest of the world. It doesn't mean that at all. As a matter of fact, Jesus says to us in uh, John 17, he says, as he's praying to the Father, and he says, my prayer is not that you would take them out of the world, but that you would protect him, protect them from the evil one. So God fully intends for us to be engaged in the world, but to understand we're not of the world, not to be influenced of, by, by the world, but rather that we would be a light to the world and we would influence others for the kingdom and that our lives would point to Christ. The problem is, the research now shows that people who are over here in the kingdom of God, people who are over here in the kingdom of this world, when you take the Christian and you take the non-believer and you look at their lives, you don't see any difference. There's little to no difference. Sin, debt, divorce, the pattern of life that Christians live as a whole is no different. This is the point of Jerry Bridges' book. We've allowed these things to creep into our lives so that people can't even see us anymore. We're called to go into the kingdom of this world and be light, and people can't even see our light because we're engaged in so much of this other acceptable sin stuff that they, they, can't, they can't see us anymore. <clears throat> to separate from the world does not mean that we are to leave our careers or give up our professions. You know, sometimes we get the idea, and I think, I think that Christianity has a big miss here. We get the idea that somehow when we become a believer, we're supposed to leave our job or the marketplace and go into what? Full-time ministry. <clears throat> Excuse me. We don't know, need more full-time people in the full-time ministry. What we need are more people who are believers who understand that they are in the ministry and they are full-time in the ministry, in the marketplace of life, in the profession they've been called where they understand that whatever you do, whether you're a teacher, a salesman, a stay-at-home mom, whether you're a banker, whether you are a whatever you are, that you understand that this is a platform God has given me to serve other people. This is my pulpit to influence the world. There's no difference. There is absolutely no difference between the full-time pastor who sits here and you except the method in which you're compensated. In God's eyes, you are a saint, you are a minister of the gospel, and you're called to be an ambassador of Christ, and it's as if Christ is speaking in and through us the message of reconciliation. Somehow we create this distinction and this separation and but no, you're not called to do that. God put you where you are. He gave you the profession, the interests, the desires, the capabilities you have, and he wants you to work as unto him and do it in a way so that his light will shine through you and influence the people you work with day to day. 
The problem is, is we go over here and we don't even think about any of that. We're just going through life in the kingdom of this world, trying to get my slice of the pie. It doesn't mean that Christians should decline relationships, and sometimes this happens. You know, they say within 18 months, all of a sudden the person who comes to know Christ and he's joined the church club and no longer has friends over here in the world. That's not God's desire. We aren't called to separate ourselves from those who are not believers. Now, obviously, there are times when in a relationship you need to do that. But for the most part, this is how God reaches the unbelievers. That's how everyone in this room was touched. At a point in your life, you were an unbeliever, and a believer came into your life who had credibility, and you saw something in their life, and what you saw was hope in the form of light, and the Spirit of God convicted you, and it drew you near that person. And that's why it says in 1 Peter 3.15, to always be prepared to give an answer for the reason for the hope that is in you. Because they see something in you, and then they come to church, and as they come to church, and they start learning, and that's the process of, of how, this, how this works. You know, and get back to the profession. I have a, a, an acquaintance I know who's a sales, car salesman, very good car, car salesman. I mean, this guy is great, and uh, he, he, can, he, he is an outstanding salesperson. As a matter of fact, he used to be, at one point, he was a non-believer, uh, you know, he would, he, he would see you coming and, and he would just start doing this as you walked up onto the lot. And what he saw was a house payment coming. Oh, this is a house payment. Ooh, this guy here, this Ron guy over here, he's, he's going to be two house payments. And Dave over there, oh man, this is going to be good. He was so good. Oftentimes in a car lot, there will be different cars over here. And, and the dealer needs to get rid of those, so there'll be, there either are higher gross uh, margins in those or there are, they, there's a bonus for selling a particular car. So he would always sell the car where he could make the most money. And so it didn't matter what kind of car you wanted. He was so good, he could convince you to buy the car where, that had the highest commission on it because it was all about him, and he was going to get you to do whatever he wanted you to do so he could make more money. Bill becomes a Christian. And all of a sudden he becomes a Christian. The Spirit of God takes up residence in his life and all of a sudden he begins to see some boulders and some rocks in his life. All of a sudden he realizes that the way he treats people is in conflict with what the truth of God is. Now that he's over here in the kingdom of God and he's all of a sudden has this, this tension with his behavior and he's coming under conviction and so all of a sudden and over a period of time as he pursued God and as he came before God and do you want me to leave being a car salesman? Should I go into the ministry? And all these things that... All of us probably struggle with but he came to realize that his real ministry was right where he was and so Bill learned how to love people so now when he sees you coming he sees somebody who Lord this is somebody you've brought to me and this is somebody who you love and Lord help me to love them and help me to serve them and help me to become a friend and help me to encourage them this day and all of a sudden, Bill's whole attitude turned around and Bill would spend the first 10 minutes just talking with this person, trying to understand them, trying to get acquainted with them and demonstrating his care and his love and building really credibility in their life. And then when he would understand exactly what it was they needed, he would help them get what they want. So over here, Bill used to to tell people, sell people whatever it was he wanted in order to make money. Now Bob does this, Bill does the same thing, but now he lives over here in the kingdom of God and he learns to, he's learned to love people and serve people and he discovers what it is they really need and then he helps them get what they really need and what they want. Subtle difference. 
Big change. Bill became very good at what he did because of his love, and frequently people would say, Bill, we don't understand you. I mean, you, you just, you break the mold. You, there's something different about you and what you do. What is it? See, it's a platform. It was this pulpit, and Bill got comfortable saying, well, you know, I'm glad that you, you asked. Always give a reason for the hope that is in you. Bill said, you know, I have a little one-pager here, which is just a, you know, my little story, and there's a little track here with some, some verses that really spoke to me, so why don't I give this to you and, you know, read it, and if you have any questions, I'd be happy to talk with you about it sometime. And Bill has led many people to Christ as a result of, uh, of his role. What it means to separate from the world, it doesn't mean that we are called to just sort of take no interest in, in things of the world, whether it's politics or whether it's sports or whether it's whatever it is. Christians aren't to separate themselves from that. As a matter of fact, Paul frequently, when he would speak, would use the language. He would quote the poets. He, he would quote the famous people of that culture and the rock stars of that era. He would integrate that into his testimony as he would speak, drawing people as he began to reason with them about their need for for Christ. So the point, of course, is, is that we are in the world, but we're not of the world. And we're to be here in the kingdom of God, knowing that we're here. We're just we're we're aliens. Our true citizenship, the scripture says, is in heaven. It's not, it's not here, but we're just passing through. But we're to be workers for Christ. We bring glory to him as we live our lives as Bill did. Well, what is it then? Well, what, what is the idea of worldliness? We've looked at what it isn't, but what, what is it? I like what Titus 2.12 says. Titus 2.12. It teaches us, it being the gospel, the gospel teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passion. So, you see, I'm a believer. You see, here's what's very interesting is the word ungodly. When you think of the word ungodly, you typically think of somebody who's not a believer, right? I mean, there's an ungodly person over there. But, but that's not it at all. You see, in the context of this verse, the, this word is used four times in the New, New Testament every time it's directed towards Christians. And it is a word that's directed towards Christians who are engaged in ungodly behavior. The scripture talks about when the Christian is involved in behavior that's not appropriate, it's ungodly. When, when a person who is not a believer is involved, then it, they're the unrighteous. So the scripture refers to the unrighteous as those who are not saved. It refers to a believer who's over here living in the world in, in, in an ungodly way as, as, as being involved in ungodliness. So it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled so that when we're over here in the kingdom of this world, we see the temptation, but we have the, the strength to say no to the worldly passion and we're self we can and say yes to the, the new desires that we have and that we can live godly in this present age. Bill, the salesperson, is an example of what this looks like. So ungodliness simply describes the attitude of a believer towards God. That's what ungodliness is. You either have a godly attitude towards God and you are living consistent with that, or you are a believer and you are ungodly because your attitude toward God tells, tells uh, God that you're not living in a way that's, 
You're, you're living in accordance with the pattern of this world, and you're not living in accordance with the pattern of the kingdom of God, which I have for you, which I desire for you. Well, what does that look like? What does ungodliness look like? What that really means is that I go into the marketplace of life, and I'm going, as I go out there tomorrow morning, and I go to work, or I go and do whatever I do, I'm not even thinking about God's purpose for my life. I go out into the, to the world and I've been doing what I've, I'm going to do that day and I'm not even thinking about what his will is for my life. Monday I get up and I, I go out and I, I have, I'm not even thinking about it. I give no thought to God. I give no thought to the idea that what I'm doing here, I'm doing it as unto the Lord. I give no thought to the idea that everything that I'm doing, I'm doing for the glory of God. Somehow we've bought into the idea that we're in the kingdom of God and that we can kind of sneak out over here, go into the kingdom of, of, of this world, and we're, we're free to do whatever we want. That's what we read, saying about, right? And there's verses that say we're free. And I can do whatever I want because we're under grace, not the law. And God is obligated to forgive me. Eh. Wrong answer. Yes, he will forgive you when it comes in terms of your salvation but in terms of your transforming and living in accordance to the pattern of this new of, of, of the kingdom of God, you're not going to feel close to God. You're not going to experience everything that, that God would have for you. As a matter of fact, the field of your life has become so full of these rocks that the soil no longer is productive and you're not as fruitful as God wants you to be. And so... My mind was rocked when I really understood this truth of how ungodly I can be because I'm not even giving thought to how I'm living my life and what I'm doing for the things of God. So what does it then mean then, this whole idea of world? We understand the definition of what ungodly behavior is, but worldliness is, is related to this. And so worldliness simply means I'm preoccupied with the things of this world. I am preoccupied with everything over here in the kingdom of this world and I'm not giving thought to the kingdom that's coming, to the things of heaven. I have no hope in that. My hope, in a sense, is my day-to-day -day -day living here. And the most important thing that God wants to teach us is to be dependent upon him. And, and, and the, 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 the problem with ungodliness is I come over here and I'm living my life in the marketplace of life as if I'm independent and I don't need God. He breaks his heart. I uh, saw a, uh, a documentary done not too long ago about uh, a new weapon system that the military had. They have this new helicopter. It's an, an incredible piece of equipment. And they were training pilots how to operate this an, an unbelievable piece of equipment. The things that this, this aircraft could do were amazing. And so one of the things that they would do is that they had to train the pilot, because there was only one pilot, and there's so many things that have to be done. They trained the pilot to have one eye that does one thing and another eye that does another thing. 
That seems kind of weird, doesn't it? I mean, to think that one eye can go this way and that way, but that's exactly what they do. And on, on the helmet of the pilot, they have this piece of equipment that, that's attached to the helmet that comes down in front of the left eye, and the left eye, as you're flying the aircraft, the left eye can look out, and for miles, the mapping of the terrain, everything is out there, and you can easily spot the sin, I mean the enemy. And, and this eye sees the enemy, and, and then what happens is because of, of the enemy, and, and, and he knows the position and what their capabilities are, this eye is watching God, or looking at the control panels here to see exactly what action I should take. And so then he, he's able then to maneuver and make the right moves based on what this eye is telling him. And so as believers, this is exactly the way we should live our lives, is we should have one eye on the sin that is crouching at the door. One eye fearing what sin could do in our lives as we begin to scan and become aware of what is going on around us. The other eye is on the things of God. The other eye is seeking him. The other eye is thinking about our eternal home. Not this home here. We're here, but we're to be like Bill selling cars for God in serving people that way where we now just one eye on me being sure that I'm doing what God has called me to do the other eye is focused on him and these two work in concert with each other now Jerry Bridges uh, talks about in the book so I'll get back to the book here now for a moment and say that you know he really says there's there's really when it comes to worldliness there's three the big three there's the big three, money, idolatry, and immorality. So let's talk about money. We're just going to touch these real quick. You mean, it's amazing when you think about money here and what's happened over the course of the last 40 years. We've seen an incredible growth in income, incredible growth in standard of living, incredible, you know, in terms of the money that's being made, it, the Christians have just participated in incredible growth. Now here's something that's very interesting. What do you think has happened to giving during this entire period? As a percentage, it's gone down. It's gone down. Matter of fact, I saw one statistic that said that the, that, that the people who were living, Christians who were living at the time of the Depression, gave a greater percentage of their income than Christians do today, overall. Is that amazing? But you see, what happens is we go over here and there's a pattern in the world. There's a way of living, and we as Christians have bought into this. And, and you know, we find that as we, as we make money, and the more we, we make, and the less we give. And, but, but not only that, but, you know, it's a very interesting because during the same period of time, do you know what's happened to credit and debt during this period of time? I mean, it's exploded. I mean, it's just amazing. As incomes have exploded, debt has exploded because, you know, the attitude of the world is over here is that, look, you can get it now, and as long as we can afford the payment, let's go get it. And, and so we end up then borrowing, and the believers have bought into this pattern of living, and now I have all of this debt, and the proverb set, says that the, the lender is a slave, or rather the, the borrower is slave to the lender. And we're in a slave relationship. We don't own the stuff. The bank owns the stuff. Somehow we've bought into the deception of the world, though, that this is the way that we can live, and it's good, and that God wants us to do that. 
It's a pattern that's in conflict with, and we as believers have oftentimes bought into this, and all of a sudden the bump comes along in the road and the pressure comes on, and I, can, I have a hard time focusing now on making my bills, and so I'm focused now more on making money so I can make my bills, and I'm caught up in this rat race over here. It does, that's not God's intention for us. When it comes to idolatry, you know, an idol is anything. This is what an idol, an idol is anything that, that takes, a, a, an idol can be anything. By the way, and, and, and most of the time what an idol is, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, let's, let's take golf. No, let's not take golf. Let's take um, card playing, you know, or let's take watching sports, uh, or let's take uh, games of some type that you enjoy playing, or let's take the internet, or let's take Facebook, or let's take uh, any of your, your little phones, let's take whatever it is, and you know, those things in and of themselves, there's nothing wrong with them, nothing. But what happens is that something that becomes an idol is something that begins to consume my emotional energy. All of a sudden, it begins to become a priority in my life. All of a sudden, it begins to consume my time and my resources. And all of a sudden, it begins to replace the important priorities in my life. And at that point, it's an idol. And you could, it could be anything, you name it. So what are the idols in your life? Immorality. Well, this is a good one. You know, we like, again, to look at the scandalous things, and we see the Tiger Woods and the Elliot Spitzer. We see the Ted Haggards, and we see the Mark Sanborns or, or the John Edwards, and we look at all of this stuff, and we see these, this, this immorality. We think, that's, that's not us. But you know what we've done over here in this culture as believers? We, we've come in, and we've, we've adopted this vicarious immorality, this is kind of cool because you see, we can watch it in movies or we can watch it on our TV and we can see it and say, and you say well, I'm not doing it. I'm not like those guys over there. But what happens is I can, I'm sitting there watching it or reading the magazines that I get at the news and I'm reading all about it and I'm vicariously experiencing this thing and it really is no different. Jesus came and he said, when a man commits adultery, he sins. When he says, when you so much as gaze upon a woman with lust, You've already committed adultery within your heart. There's a vicarious thing. We get sucked into it, and so we become no different. And uh, when it comes to uh, this immorality, and you know, we get deceived into thinking that somehow we're not affected by that, but in effect, what's really happened in all these areas is that we've allowed these, these little rocks to begin to just work their way up in our life and as a result of that we no longer are living in accordance with the pattern of the kingdom of God but we're over here deceived and thinking that maybe we are when we're really living more in accordance with the pattern of this world and the fruit in our life just isn't there as God would like it to be so what's the secret what is the secret to overcoming the world ungodliness and worldliness what is it I don't know. Anybody know? Well, let's take a look at a few verses to see if we can get some insights. The first thing we see in Romans 8.13, obviously we have to seek God. Seeking God is a critical piece to this. Seek God, for if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. If you're over here living and you're consumed with things here, you will die. Now the word there, the way that's interpreted, there is coming a point when all of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Everything you've done in your life will be judged. It's going to be put to the fire. That's what it says. 
uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Everything you do is going to be put to the fire. And it is a judgment of the things that you did while you were here. <clears throat> it is not a judgment of, in terms of punishment. It is a judgment in terms of rewards. However, there will be significant disappointment at this judgment because it says that if you spend your whole life and you invest it over here, what you've done is you've built your life out of hay, wood, and stubble, and when it comes to the test, the fire will be burned up. You will make it into heaven, but as though one ex escaping from the flames is what the Word of God says. You'll get to heaven, but you see, you've lived your life over here and you've built your life out of hay, wooden stubble because you've bought into the pattern of living over here. But then it goes on and it says, those things, however, that you do while you're here and you're doing it like Bill was doing it and you're living your pattern of your life is, is the kingdom of God while you're here and you're, you're living in a godly manner, then the, your life is built out of precious stones and silver and gold and it will be put to the test and, and of course the reward will be there. But the Spirit says, but if you live by the Spirit, you will put to death the misdeeds of the body. So there's a new thing here. When Christ came and when you received him as, 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 as Lord and Savior, what happens is the Spirit of God came in your life and God has given you the Spirit to lead you, guide you, teach you, convict you, and help you over here in the kingdom of God. And so this is how we're to, to transfer our affection and the Spirit of God works in us and leads us, Colossians 3, 5, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly and natural, your nature, your sex, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Put to death, therefore, these things. You can't do it, but see, you have to say no to that, but it's the Spirit of God that gives you the strength to say no to that and yes to the things of God. And as I understand and spend time in the Word of God and I learn about the new pattern and how I'm to live, and as I seek to do that, God begins to transform me. And I begin to lose interest in things of the world. That's why it says in Philippians 2, 12, and 13 to continue to look at this, work out your salvation. Isn't this interesting? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. Well, what is it? Is it working out or is it working in? Now let me go over here and, and say something separately for a minute. We're not talking about good works to, to earn your salvation. That's not the context of what this verse means. You cannot work for your salvation. That's a gift of God. It comes by grace, and you cannot work. You can do nothing to receive it other, other than to receive it as a free gift. What this verse is talking about is that once you become a believer, what's important for us now is we need to turn and we need to allow the Spirit of God to work in and change us, and there is a new pattern that we have to live. And as we begin to move in the direction of the Spirit and let him lead us, and we seek to apply these things to our life, and we begin to discipline ourselves to say no to ungodliness and yes to the things, we become stronger and we're able to live here. But you know what? If we never do that, if we never work out, God won't work in. Have you ever, you know, you ever had that sin, you know, where you, you sin and the next day you sin, you don't want to, but you sin, sin, next week sin, so it keeps repeating, Anybody ever, can you relate to that? Have you ever done this one? Okay, you're not going to do it, Blake, you're not going to, I'm not going to do this, I'm not going to sin, I'm not going to sin, I'm not going to do this sin, and then I go right out and what do I do? I sin. You know what I'm talking about. Or, or how about this one? Lord, Lord, I'm calling out to you. I, you know I don't, this area of my life, I've got to sin. I sin here and I don't want to sin. Lord, would you, Lord, prevent me, keep me from, heal me. Lord, take it away. Huh. Then I go out there and what do I do? I sin. 
You see, to kind of live your prayer life and Christian life like that is a little bit like this. It's like, okay, Lord, I want my arms to grow. I need to get stronger. I need my heart beat up. I need to be healthier. You know, I, I, need to, I need to be in much better physical condition. If I'm in better physical condition, I can represent you better, Lord. So, Lord, make my arms bigger. Lord, help my heartbeat to grow fast. Lord, help me do this. <sighs> Ain't going to work. It isn't going to work because that's not the design. It, God has a divine design he's put in place, he's put in his word. He says, Blake, you idiot. This is the pattern. If you will come over here and turn towards me, I've put the spirit in you to lead you, guide you, convict you. Be aware of that. Quit turning me off and coming over here and living in this world as if this is what it's all about. And you completely ignore me. You completely live your life totally as if I'm not there. And then you expect me to come down like some cosmic Santa Claus and just do everything you want me to do for you? Ain't going to happen. Are you saved? Yes. Are you walking in the Spirit and transforming and leaving, leading a Spirit-filled Christian life, a testimony to other people, a light that other people see and say, oh, wow, I wish it could be like them? No, because I need to transform. There's a part that I have to do. That's why it says work out. And when I'm working out and I'm doing this, God begins to work in. And to the extent that I work out, the more God works in me. And that's where discipline and self-control, it's hard, it's not easy. But as I begin to exercise in that way, God speaks and, and begins to transform and change me. And, you know, it's very interesting, you know, when you, uh, when you think about sin and the sin nature, because we all have that sin nature, and that sin nature, we, it's there. It's like the law of gravity. You know, the law of gravity. I mean, you just, it, we are all affected by the law of gravity. There isn't anything that none of us can overcome the law of gravity. I mean, it is, no, none of us can overcome sin in and of ourselves. It is built into the very fabric and framework of our whole existence. Okay? And for centuries, thousands of years, this was true in terms of, uh, in terms of the uh, gravity. But then a couple guys come along from Ohio and they begin to think about maybe there's a new law besides the law of gravity that might exist out there. And they discover the law of aerodynamics. And the, the law of aerodynamics is different. It can, you can free yourself from the law of gravity if you can apply the law of aerodynamics. The law of aerodynamics has two primary principles to it. One is propulsion. So if you go fast enough, number one, and number two, if you can provide enough lift on the wings then what begins to happen is you can free yourself from the law of gravity and you can overcome it and this is a higher law. And it can, it's free and it will take off and it will fly. It's not contained by the law of gravity. And this is exactly what Jesus has done for you and I because, you see, the law of sin controlled us over here. But Jesus came with a new law and it's called the law of the Spirit. And when we apply and appropriate the truth of the law of the Spirit, we are free. That's what we were saying. And when the Bible says you are free, you are free from the kingdom of this world and the, the, the law of sin in your life, and you are now free to not have to be a slave to that, but you can obey God in the kingdom of this world and live your life this way. And this is where peace and joy and kindness and joy, this is where, full, this is where all the fruit of the Christian living, the, life, the Christian life is, is at. So the question is, are you going to do that? What are you going to do? 
You know, you got a pebble when you came in. Okay, take that pebble out. You know, that, that pebble, I got a few of them here because I got, I got a few pebbles in my life I'm working on. But there's a pebble there. This, this pebble represents some sin in your life. I don't know what it is, but it could be a boulder. Chances are, with this many people in the room, there's somebody here with a boulder in your life. But you know I don't. Some of you have big rocks you're still dealing with. Some of you have little ones. Whatever is going on in your life, this pebble is going to symbolize that. But now the question is, what are you going to do when you leave here? Are you just going to say, well, that was interesting? Or did the Spirit of God in some way reveal some truth, something to you, and now that we've been given that truth, we've got to do something with it? Will, will you take this pebble and say, Lord, this is not acceptable in my life anymore. I've lived too long. It's become acceptable, but not anymore. And I want to give this back to you. So in an attitude of prayer, can we just right now maybe bow? and You know what it is in your life, what this pebble is. What is that little, that sin thing, whether it's, whatever it is. Will you just right now just confess that to the Lord and just say, Lord, I, I'm tired of living in the kingdom of this world. I'm tired of calling myself a believer and somehow thinking I'm doing the right things, but I'm just over here in the mud of this world spinning my tires. Lord, I know I need to seek you and I need to seek the Spirit's leading in my life and just ask that you would renew my heart and my mind. You've, you tell us in Ezekiel that you've given us a new heart, a responsive heart. You tell us in Romans that you've written your laws upon our hearts and our minds, that you're in our thoughts, you're in our conscience. The Spirit of God is constantly convicting us and wanting to draw us and help us to adopt this new pattern of living. Lord, give me an appetite for your word. Teach me how to live in your kingdom. Lord, I don't want to flirt with the world anymore. I don't want to date. I don't want to go study with the world. I, I just want to be a man, a woman of God in the kingdom of God, living what time you're going to give me here in a manner, in a pattern that brings honor and glory to you. As we're still in an attitude of prayer, this two things you can do with this pebble. You can just keep it in your pocket as a reminder. Or as you leave here today, I'll go out the back door. There's a little vase out there, and you can just put that as an offering to God in a sense and say, Lord, this is, this is the sin. I'm going to deal with this, and I'm gonna, I confess it, and I want you, Lord, to, to be my strength. And through the power of the Spirit, Lord, transform me, change me. Help me to work out, Lord, my salvation. We thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your word that teaches us. Thank you for the Spirit of God that's there for the express purpose of helping to us to understand these things and to change. We give you all the glory. Thank you for this day you've given us. May we not be the, cha be the same in, when we leave this place. We ask all these things in Christ's name.
And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless.